before we encourage men to even begin their journey, we ask them to show up at home first. Then our research revealed there were sort of two big categories of things that effective male allies did. Number one were the interpersonal things, how I show up uh, with women in the workplace. The second big category is more the public systemic. You know, what do I do that requires me to put more skin in the game publicly to be a more significant ally for equity? So just a few of the interpersonal things. The number one thing women told us was, dudes, could you just listen? Apparently men are not good at this. And I mean, listening in a way that is generous and spacious, not interrupting. And I think that's where you begin to learn more, right? About the experiences of women. I'm your host, Michelle King, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. When it comes to advancing women at work, there is a gap between the commitment male allies say they have and what they're actually doing. It is the same as the conversation around race. It's not enough to say that you're not a racist. You have to actually do something to create change and take action. In this episode, David Smith and Brad Johnson show why and how men have a crucial role to play in promoting gender equality at work. Research shows that when men are deliberately engaged in gender inclusion programs, 96% of women in those organizations perceive real progress in gender equality, compared to only 30% of women in organizations without strong male engagement. Smith, a sociologist, and Johnson, a clinical psychologist, are both former naval officers with a mission to help men become more effective allies with women and more inclusive leaders in the workplace. Research finds that 77% of men believe that they're doing all they can to support gender equality, while only 41% of women agree. This means that men must do more to speak up and speak out when they see bad behaviour. Active confrontation of other men for sexism, bias, harassment and all manner of inappropriate behaviour may be the toughest part of male allyship. It is also essential. Here, Brad shares why men need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Men sometimes, naturally, you know, when they hear about allyship or they come to one of David and I's events and they want to hear about how to start, you know, the allyship journey. And sometimes they're a little disappointed when what we ask them to do initially is how about going to a women's event or a diversity event or something around gender inclusion in the workplace in your own company and when you go to this, if, if the Women's Network invites you to come, um, how about just going and being quiet, right, and, and learning and, and doing the self-education and finding out about the experiences of your female colleagues? This is not about men doing the white knighting, and I, and I think that message has got to come through when we talk about allyship. You know, in, in our research 
for the first book, Athena Rising, we found out that men often have these things we call manscripts. You know, so uh, when it comes to how I interact with women in the workplace, I, I often default to things that I'm comfortable with, right? And so guys are comfortable with like the mother uh, son manscript or the father daughter, or, you know, maybe they're comfortable with knowing how to have a partner or spouse. Um, but, you know, too often men default to these manuscripts that involve rescuing and white knighting and charging in to take care of women in the workplace. And not only is that entirely unhelpful for women, for the most part, it's very undermining. Um, but women made it clear in our interviews for both books that that's not what they're looking for in a male colleague and a male ally. And in fact, what they love is for a guy who humbly comes along aside and asks, what can I do or how can I contribute? A guy who begins to self-educate and notice disparities in the workplace. A guy who holds himself accountable to change his own behavior, make it more inclusive and equitable. But, you know, for goodness sakes, you know, message to men, don't call yourself an ally. You know, let women decide if you're an ally and just do the work. In the meantime, just do the work. Try and get better. Show up every day as a colleague. And if someone calls you an ally, then good for you. But remember, even then, you're only an ally to that one woman, not all women. Yeah, you know, I think we found in the research we were doing when talking to men about one, getting in touch with why this is important to them, and they have to begin to understand that for themselves. And that's different, I think, for each person. Um, but finding that connection to doing the work, the motivation to do the work can be a little bit different for everyone. And and certainly one of the things that we find is really motivating is having some sort of a personal connection to this. So whether it's a family member, a peer, a colleague, a mentor, a mentee, somebody who really matters to you, right? You care about their livelihood and their career and, and how they feel about this, that when they express uh, or share experiences with you and, and you're just like, wow, that's not right. That's the injustice of that. That's not fair. Right. And we begin to see how others experience the workplace differently than we do. It gets in touch with that, that sense of fairness we have, that, that injustice gene you might, I think every human being has it to some extent or another. And that motivates behavior, it motivates change. And then we can really begin to take that and, and work with it within the company or within the individuals. Performative allyship is the practice of talking a big talk about being an ally, but never really backing it up with action. What are you doing when no one is watching? How are you working to confront personal beliefs and biases that might be racist and sexist? Personal connection is the key to ensuring allyship isn't performative, recognizing why you're committed to being an ally and how it serves to benefit you. Here, David shares more on how gender equality benefits men. You know, we talk about that and write about that pretty consistently, that the benefits of this, right, is we think about gender equity is not necessarily just for women, right? This is for all of us, for men, women, and our organizations, our, the companies that we work in, because men benefit in so many different ways. And we found this, you know, in starting our research with Athena Rising, the same thing for good guys and the variety of different ways. And, and sometimes men don't recognize that. There's this understanding that I think feel like it's focused in particular toward women, but really as men, you know, we're suffering to some extent, we're, we're not getting the full benefit, right, of 
the work that we're doing in our organizations because we're working within this suppression, this unequal system out there that doesn't allow everyone to participate in the same way. It just, you know, to illustrate a couple things we found in terms of how guys benefit. I mean, and Dave and I just wrote about with Katika Roy, this zero-sum thinking that men often engage in around gender equity, right? If if women gain, I'm going to lose something, right? This zero-sum phenomenon. And, and the research shows it's just a fallacy. It's not true. When you have more women included all the way up into senior leadership, the companies do better. And when the company does better, everyone does better and there's more opportunity. And then individually, we found that men who engaged more in equitable relationships and collegial relationships with women, they got better emotional intelligence, better communication skills. They had broader networks. They had more access to information. They just benefited both personally and in terms of career. And by the way, the EQ, emotional communication stuff, you don't check that at the door in the evening. You get to take that home with you to make you a better partner and parent. And so men benefit in a lot of ways if they'll lean into these cross-gender relationships. Gender equality begins at home. Families are at the front lines of change. For the next generation, the example set at home by parents, caregivers and extended family are shaping the way they think about gender and equality. From breaking down gender stereotypes to sharing the care work and educating children about women's rights and gender equality, each of us can advance equality at home, as David explains. Gender equity really does start in the home. As parents, you know, we're role modeling for our kids. We're socializing our children and what to expect and what gender roles and relationships and what work and family looks like when they get to the old enough to be out there in the workplace. And so, again, the research shows that, you know, when men are being all in equal allies at home and they're not just taking the kids to practice and, you know, doing some of the the very transactional things, but really having a relationship and spending time with the kids in, in a variety of different ways. And they see it also with the supporting men, supporting their partners' careers in the same way, right? There's this give and take of support that goes on in both careers. The kids are watching, they're seeing that. And for the boys, you know, they have a more gender inclusive perspective of what gender roles look like when they get to the workplace. And so those expectations translate into, all right, so when I'm looking for a company, I'm looking for particular policies, I'm looking for a particular way to structure or schedule my day and things like that. And so I think it's kind of ironic, you know, as we think about millennials and Gen Z, they often get a bad rap about, you know, can't stay in a job more than a year or two, right? They're bouncing around. And I said, well, part of it is that that's our fault as parents, for those of us who have, uh, you know, Gen Z or millennial kids out there, that we raise them to expect certain things. And when they get to companies with very traditional perspectives about what work and family looks like and the way it's structured, they're not happy. They are not happy and they, they know they should be expecting more and better. And so they go look for it somewhere else. And then the other thing I think for dads who are doing this really deliberately in their household, for our daughters, they're more likely to persist in their careers, to reach their career goals and dreams. And they're more likely to enter into non-traditional professions and industries out there. Again, so if we're ever going to get to some sort of gender parity or gender balance and get away from these traditionally historically male-dominated professions out there, we've got to have more of our daughters seeing this as a place that's, you know, this is a place where I want to go to work. This is what I want to do in my professional life. 
Intersectionality is the key to allyship. Any actions you take as an ally have to adopt intersectional thinking by understanding the different identities that we all have and how this creates different and new experiences of inequality. Here Brad shares why men need to check their assumptions when it comes to practicing allyship. Dave and I, in the research for Good Guys and interviewing a kind of very diverse group of women, one of the things that was very clear in what women had to say about men understanding not only what they experience in the workplace, but then how to show up as an ally, was watch the assumptions, you know, that all women are a monolith, right? They're all the same. And I think it is easy for men to do that. You know, once I understand one woman's experience, now I get it. I'm there. And in contrast, I think you have to show up with some cultural humility and gender humility in, in those relationships. They're all going to be a bit different. All the experience will be different. So if I'm mentoring a junior woman in the workplace who doesn't look like me, I don't want to make assumptions about what cultural identities matter to her, uh, what her experiences have been in the workplace, or where she'll want to go in her career. I think that's another you know risky thing, men making assumptions about where women will want to or not want to go simply because of gender or you know other identities. So I think one solution is to ask, you know, and especially after I've established some trust, I would love to learn more about your experience and uh, what it's been like for you. You know, gosh, I can't help but be aware that you're the only black woman in our IT department. And I'm very curious about what that's been like for you and what you've experienced and how we can keep you here. If I'm not sure that she'll want to share that with me, I can simply ask to ask, right? You know, I wonder if it would be okay if I asked you about some of these experiences that might have to do with your experience as a woman of color in our company and or in the workforce generally, I really would like to know that. And if you'd like to share it, I'd love to hear it. So I can make the offer, I can have humility, I can have a learning orientation, and I can really watch the assumptions, I think. A 2019 survey found that an increasing number of men say they're fearful of working with female colleagues, especially in the post-MeToo era. 60% of male managers say they're uncomfortable mentoring, socializing, or even working alone with women in the workplace. Hugh Brad shares how men can get over their fears. Men feeling anxious about relationships with women, about mentoring women, about being a better friend and colleague to women in the workplace. And, you know, Dave and I heard this so much in our interviews for Athena Rising. We actually developed a term for this called the reluctant male syndrome, right? All these guys on the sidelines who won't lean into mentoring women or having uh, collegial friendships because they're afraid of stepping in it, saying the wrong thing. Maybe she'll misinterpret my offer you know, of mentoring. I don't really know what to do in these relationships, you know, maybe kind of a close, intimate friendship with a woman that's not sexual. I don't know how to do that, right? No one ever gave me a manuscript for that. So, the outcome is I avoid. And so, message to men, you know, there's only one treatment for fear of women. There's actually a term for it, gynophobia. If you're afraid of women, there's only one cure, and that's exposure therapy. You have to have more interaction, more coffees, more lunches, more mentoring. You need to initiate this. You need to initiate uh, conversations. So, 
don't put this on women, right? Don't make it her problem that you're anxious about entering into conversations. And then, you know, part of the unspoken thing here, I think, too, Michelle, is the whole Me Too phenomenon, right? And we all saw the numbers go way up in the U.S. at least. You know, 60% of men in corporate America post Me Too were saying, I would never mentor a woman, right? I'm just not comfortable doing that. Well, that comes from some false narratives, right, about Me Too, like women caused Me Too or women are now scary, right, because of Me Too. Dave and I really push back on that and tell men, hey, Me Too is really simple. Women are asking to come to work and not be assaulted or harassed. Really low bar for men to get over. So let's push back. And you need to, if you're a guy, you've got to own responsibility. When you hear that stuff about women being dangerous, you need to be the one to push back on that and say, show me the evidence. There's not any research that women make false accusations in any measurable numbers against men. And so we tell guys, hey, if you're two bumbling, error-prone men like Dave and I trying to get better, I think you have more probability of getting struck by lightning than having a woman make a false accusation against you. So let's push back on all that false anxiety stuff. Here, Brad details the key steps that all men can take to become allies to women at work. We've already talked about showing up at home. And actually, before we encourage men to even pass go and begin their journey, we ask them to show up at home first. After you're doing that, or after you're getting that straightened out and you're sharing equally, then our research revealed there were sort of two big categories of things that effective male allies did. Number one were the interpersonal things, right? So these were the things that had to do with how I show up with women in the workplace. These are the everyday interpersonal micro skills that I can get better at to show that I'm really invested in collegiality and collaboration. The second big category is more the public systemic. You know, what do I do that requires me to put more skin in the game publicly to be a more significant ally for equity? So just a few of the interpersonal things. Um, the number one thing women told us in both Athena Rising and Good Guys in all our interviews was, dudes, could you just listen? Apparently, men are not good at this. And I think Dave and I had no idea how bad men as half of the species were at just listening, you know, and I mean listening in a way that is generous and spacious, not interrupting, not listening for her problems so you can fix her, but just listening to her and becoming a sounding board and giving your time that way. That is a really important starting place. And I think that's where you begin to learn more, right, about the experiences of women. Second, don't make assumptions about her, right? Just because she's a woman, don't assume that she won't want a certain career opportunity. Too many of the stories we heard from women and men had to do with men just quickly coming to a conclusion about what a mentee would want because she's a woman or because she's a mother or what she wouldn't want to do versus actually asking her, right, and discerning what her career vision looks like. I think men also need to get better at what Dave and I call situational awareness, right? So this is paying attention to things that we men usually miss, right? Your next meeting, if you're a guy, start paying attention to who's in the room, who's not there, who didn't get invited, who should be there talking about uh, her expertise, right? Because she's a subject matter expert, but nobody thought to include her. Who's 
being interrupted. We know women are interrupted three times more than men in the workplace. If I'm a guy, I don't even notice that because I never am the recipient of the interruptions. If I want to be a better equity ally, I got to notice that. It's not until I notice it that I can say something, you know. I think with a situational awareness, I also just need to know the mood in the room, right? Mm-hmm. Are women pulling back? Are they offended? Has someone said something that's inappropriate? Are women being talked over and dismissed? I need to notice this stuff. And then, you know, one more that I might share from the interpersonal side is just the friendship part. Women told us I'm really willing to give you feedback as a male colleague, but only if you do the work to establish trust first, right? And there are different ways that you do that. Don't come running in and try and rescue me. You know, have the curiosity, ask good questions, have the humility. And then you also have to pass the friend test. And what I mean by that is I should never hear about something you've said about me behind my back that's not positive or affirming, right? If I can't trust you to be my advocate when I'm not in the room, the trust is not going to be there. You're probably not going to be a guy who gets that key feedback you need to get from me. Finally, Brad shares some key actions that all of us can start taking today to become allies. So men, I've got a litmus test question for you. If you're mentoring a woman, let me just ask you, Are you loudly talking about her when she's not in the room, right? Are you talking about her behind her back? Usually that wouldn't be a good thing, but in sponsorship, it is a good thing if you're raving about her. So are you her raving fan? Are you telling other people in leadership that she's ready for the next thing, putting her name forward, talking about her accomplishments? If you're not doing that publicly, you're not doing mentoring in the way uh, it's going to be most useful not only for her, but for your company. And I think as senior leaders, we have to be comfortable being uncomfortable here and getting really comfortable with this and finding some clarity and being able to talk about these topics around diversity and gender and race, right? Because people are listening. They want leaders to lead and they want to hear what you have to say and they want you to show. So you've got to get comfortable talking about it and find some clarity in terms of why is this personally important to me? right? Share that with them, be authentic with that, and then connect it to your business. You've got to connect it to the business and why this is important to the organization because people are really busy and we all have priorities and this can't be just another one-off program. tuning in to today's episode. I hope you found this interview with Brad and David really helpful for you or the men in your life who want to become better allies to women of work. If you're interested in learning more on the topic, then please check out their book, Good Guys. Before you go, if you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our weekly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all again next week.